Today I'll be reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Though our focus of the sermon today will be Hebrews 9, 1 through 2, we will read in the full context of that, ending with Christ's victorious work as our great high priest. Hear now the very word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail now. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, but he once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us now to hear these words, to see this beautiful picture of who you are, who your Son is, And the power of your Holy Spirit, that we are now on the other side of that work, that once and for all payment for sin, that we have even now a greater picture of the reality of our communion with you. Father, enlighten every element of our minds and our hearts so that we may be able to see this great truth. That if we need to repent, that we would repent and hold on to that blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. And that we would be encouraged by the reality of your presence forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's always um, 
a little daunting sometimes when you're talking with your fellow elder and he tells you, he says, oh, you got your work cut out for you uh, as you go into this particular chapter. Um, The great thing of being bound by going through the passages together and expositing verse by verse and going through is that sometimes it, it doesn't fit Maybe the, the atmosphere that we want to go with. Um, and maybe we would want to talk about something else. But God is the one who leads the conversation. He's the one who wants us to hear his word. And here we are in this particular passage that on first reading for most of us, I think most of us, and I've mentioned this time and time again, maybe some of you don't feel this way and I am so grateful for your maturity. But I find that in this age that whenever we talk about the tabernacle or the temple, or a lot of times in the Old Testament, we, we tend to kind of maybe get foggy-headed. You know, I hear time and time again when people are talking about reading certain books of the law or the Old Testament, how it's just a struggle to plow through those things. But I pray that today, I believe that this passage, if you remember the context, that the context of this passage is to, one, to highlight primarily the supremacy and wonder of Jesus Christ, but for the purposes of encouraging his church to continue on in the struggle as we go through striving to enter into that rest. What is the second point? If you remember, I've told you that Hebrews has these three points, and I gave you the first one as a bonus. There are three points that were introduced in Hebrews chapter 4 that are thematic throughout all of the book of Hebrews that you could pretty much use as a template and understanding every section of the book of Hebrews. And if you do that, you can see what the actual call is. The first one is to strive to enter into his rest. What is the second one? To hold fast. To hold fast what? Confession. The confession. To hold fast the confession of what we believe, what has been told to us in his word. The promises that God has given us. And then lastly, what is the third point? Oh, y'all weren't ready for your test today. So, no, that's, 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 that's our means of being able to do this. But we have this strive to interest. I haven't, I haven't given you all a refresher in a couple of Sundays. So, so I, I give you a little bit of help there. But I want you to remember these three particular points. Go back and read Hebrews chapter 4. Is that we are called to strive to enter into his rest. Into his work, which brings forth rest. To hold fast to the confession of his promises and the declaration of who Christ is. And then thirdly, to draw near to him. That by this happening, by what Jesus did as the great high priest, we are able to draw near to him. And so this is not meant to be something that would cause you to go into a place of foggy-headedness or, or a difficulty. It's actually to enlighten the senses to be able to understand the greatness of what we had in comparison to the greatness of what was before. We tend to look at the language often when we see them, as I've mentioned before about the law, that when we see that the law is ineffective, we, all, we put it in a major context or put it in a context of a very negative thing. No, it was ineffective to save, but it wasn't a negative thing. It was a positive thing that it actually convicted us to sin. It is a wonderful thing because it displays the character of God. So we cannot say that it's a negative thing. And so when we look at the worship that they had before them, the regulations of worship that they had before them in the Old Testament, we may look back and go, oh, it was full of shadows and, and it was ineffective. Yes, it was ineffective to prick the conscience. 
And it was only a shadow of what Christ is. But it was still a very good thing. It was a very wonderful thing. And so for us to remember the wonder and the beauty of that, it helps magnify the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And is greater than that. We're not comparing Jesus to a bad thing. We're comparing Jesus to a great thing because he is the fulfillment of it. And he is the completion of it. And he is the one who allows us to draw near to him. Last week I talked a little bit about a movie, and uh, it was a good manly, rough movie, and we watched part of it that, that evening. And again, it's, it's, it's pretty rough, you know, so I would encourage you to go and read some reviews if you haven't watched that movie um, before you, you do it with your family. But I was thinking about how to maybe compare the situation that we have between the Old and New Testament in a way that might be a little bit more attainable for a moment. Now, I've actually had to pray about this because I'm always afraid when I use too much movie-type talk, y'all, it might be giving you too much watering down. But I can actually use one of my least favorite genres of movies as a comparison, which is romantic comedies. Romantic comedies are hard to find that are actually any good because you know, they, they tend to have, the romance is, is questionable and not consistent often with scripture. And then the comedy is sometimes a little across the line. But there's something inside of, as a formula inside of a lot of romantic comedies, and there's some good ones and there's bad ones out there, that is a similar scenario to what is going on here. When we look at romantic comedies, one particular method that they use is that sometimes you see the, the, the secret admirer inside of the romantic comedy or someone who is doing something and a person who is unaware of who the identity of that particular um, person is that's doing that is you kind of have like a triangulation or something going on, whether it's letters or a song or an action, and then there's this man and woman relationship and the man or the woman is doing something here and they don't know that that person is doing that activity but they are admiring that or they are allured by that or they're drawn you know often if it's a letter it's like oh they they wrote they wrote this beautiful poetry and isn't this person just great and i wish i could find someone like that And, and then the person's right there beside them the whole time and they're maybe a good friend or a confidant. And they may even think, well, no, this is not the person that I would be interested in and having any kind of romance in. This is the person that I would love. And, and you're seeing bits and pieces of shadows of this wondrous individual that you would love to be with, that you would love to go out to dinner with. And you don't realize they're right there beside you. What we have here when we look at the Old Testament description of the tabernacle and temple worship is a beautiful, vivid description of God desiring to be with his people and all that he is going to do to make that happen. And what the Hebrews were doing here is that they are still very, the Christian Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, we're still very captivated by these old shadows. They, they love the love letters and they love the idea. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Jesus is here. He has come. That you don't need to just be all involved in these old things when the person that desires to be with you is here 
right here and right now. I mean, you see this kind of genre in a lot of different things. You see it in, even in superhero movies. I knew that would not wake up some of the younger crowd by saying that. You see, the, the, there's an identity of someone that's being hidden. You know, you got Superman, you got Batman, you got Spider-Man, and the person's doing heroic things, and people are in awe by this individual and, and what they're doing, and the person's right there with them, and they don't even realize it because the identity is hidden. And that is somewhat what it was like to be in the Old Testament, but we have here one proclaiming, this is the one that has heroically saved the world and desires to be near you. So it's good to go back. You know, you see this even when you think about a lot of times you see when um, maybe grandparents, when they are coming close to the end of their life or they've already passed away and, and someone will go and they'll, they'll find the trunk that has all of the the letters between the grandmother and the grandfather, or you'll see their, their, their war um, trophies that they have, things that they were acknowledged for, and, and you, you may have not have realized just all the wonderful things, and you're in the trunk, and you're going through these things, and you're like, oh, you're just, you already admire this person, but you, the, you're getting to know this person even more and more. In a sense, that's better for us to look at and how this particular thing is, is that we want to go back and think about these things that happened in the tabernacle worship so that we can know Jesus more. Now, the writer of the Hebrews is saying that I'm going to only spend a brief amount of time going over that because he's highlighting the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. But he is making reference to it. And you have to keep in mind, these folks would have had a much greater intimate understanding of tabernacle worship. And I think for us, it kind of goes over our head. But tabernacle worship... I would like to contend, was a wondrously beautiful image of what kind of God we worship. And so I want to spend some time going through, wanting to try to, try to be brief, and we'll see how it goes, but to try to take some time. Maharus encouraged me to go just, just do one or two verses at a time here. And look at these particular things and try to maybe to adopt the mindset that they would have had so that we can understand when we get to that of verses 11 and 12, that we can understand just how much that Christ is the center of all of this. It says in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Now we know in tabernacle worship that we see that it has a progression as it goes from tabernacle to the temple. But we also, and we know that it's, there's a temporal element to the tabernacle. But we see that God was showing that he was dwelling amongst his people. And we have these different sections as you're getting closer to the holiness of God and to the closer elements of the presence of God. But what we see here that's really very clear and very vivid is that it is a place, an earthly place of holiness that, is, that has furniture. It's like a home. That God is being very hospitable. We see throughout all of this, and you can go back and I encourage you to go to Exodus 25 and 26, to look at the very intricate design 
that God has created for this worship by pointing out every little detail of what is going on with the furniture and the activity that goes on inside of these places of dwelling where God is. So today's sermon only basically has two points. We have the lampstand, and then I'm going to combine the table and the bread of presence into one because the bread of presence is on top of the table, of course. And we see that there's gold. Now, first of all, the lampstand. Now, I'm I'm not going to go into a very intricate. There's so much that can be talked about with the lampstand. I mean, right offhand, we know that this particular lampstand is likely referencing the tree of life that we have in Genesis and we also have in Revelation. And we see in the description in Exodus that it had seven candles. You had a trunk with one candle, and then you had three going off of each side, creating seven. That was showing the perfection and the completion, and ultimately referencing the tree of life. And that particular lampstand was showing forth light, particularly, as it says in the scriptures, to shine light upon the table. In the table of presence, you had bread. Now, they kept the light going continually. They even brought in oil continually. The priests would do so. On a regular basis, they would bring in the oil to keep the light shining on the table. And once a week, they would bring forth the bread. And you had two piles of bread. You had 12 loaves of bread in two different piles, six different loaves per pile, which would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the amazing thing about what God is communicating to us, one, we're seeing that he is giving us this eternal light. And we see that this is, it really is a completion when we get to see it on this side that we actually can read Revelation 22 and see the tree there at the end, giving out fruit for the healing of God's people. But here it is as it's shining forth onto the table, we see that this is a God that is different than all the other pagan gods. At that particular time, it was not unusual for there to be a pagan religion where they're giving sacrifices to God in such a way to feed the God of their particular religion as if they needed that particular sustenance. But here, this is a communion meal that this bread was for God but it is also showing that God is the provision of that bread. And here in these two piles, these two piles of 12 loaves, it's saying that this is a provision for you. That God desires to eat with his people and to show forth that continual light, continual reminder of God being creator and provider but also that we get to participate in that as well. I've heard another pastor say that when we look at the bread of presence, that we see the presentation of who God is and the preservation of God's people in that bread, but also the participation of God's people in consuming that bread and being preserved by it and being given the ability to know who God is. This is a beautiful thing. This is a thing that whenever we you know, invite people over, we, we think about every little intricate detail. We want to 
We want to make sure the house is clean. That's how we get our house clean, right, Jennifer? We, we invite people over so that we will do house clean. You know, if people did, you know, if there was some kind of absolute law that we would never have people over, I don't know what we would do. I don't know if we would clean the house. No, I'm not. I'm sure we would. <laughs> but, it, but that's the way it tends to feel like because we have to, you know, at our particular house with all the people that, you know, it's, it's hard to just keep up with it all the time. But we start thinking about everything. It's like, you know, we want to make sure the bathrooms are clean. We want to clean up. The, you know, the first thing I do is, guys, get out there and pick up all your toys and all the junk in the yard. You know, and it's like we want to provide this presentation. This is what God is doing, that he is going through great extremes to communicate to his people as he is taking them through the wilderness that he is with them. There is the struggle and the difficulty of the wilderness and in many respects, we have this in our own age. And they ultimately, the biggest enemy that they had was sin because they had to have sacrifices to even get into the first section. But then a yearly, there had to be this atonement of the blood there on the mercy seat, highlighting that they were separated. There's these curtains. There's this, there's this hiddenness. But God, at the same time, that he creates this theater of, of making it very dark in there, And then having this light, this light of life and revelation of knowing who God is. And that is a wonderful thing that we must remember. We must look at this lampstand and we can get caught up in that lampstand. We can go through the scriptures and we could do two or three years and probably still only be at the tip of the iceberg of this whole understanding of what light is. And then to understand that how God provides us with this bread, and that he eats with us. That he loves us that much. But constantly there, being reminded of this barrier, even though there is this invitation. And that's the amazing thing there, is God is saying, my delight is to draw you near. But then there is this problem, which is our sin. So we have to strive in to enter that rest that God has Provided, We have to hold fast to confession. We need to make the lampstand and the table our own understanding of that confession. Here now even more since the shadow has been lifted and the veil has been torn, we have this access to God that they did not even have at that particular time. How many of you all have ever been to an art museum before? A good number of you. And it's interesting, it's, you know, when, you, when you're on the internet or if you're in books and you're looking at the art, you know, it's usually that big, <laughs> you know, maybe that big. And maybe if you have a really one of those big books, it's about that big. And when you're on the internet or if you're on your phone, it's really only that, that big. But it's really cool to go into an art museum and you some, sometimes I'm amazed at how big the painting is or how big the statue is or whatever it is that I've seen a picture of. And it's, you know, wondrous thing when I've been able to go to the Met in New York the Metropolitan Museum. And it's just amazing to see these enormous works of art and that I've only seen very small images of. But then when you get really close to it, you, know, you're, you're, you get really amazed. You've got to keep in mind that this person, and even back then they, were, they had a lot more limited resources, they were painting, when they're painting in a certain area like this, it just looks like lines, Right? Or waving things. And, and you, when you get the close-up view of these paintings, it doesn't look like much of anything. Just a lot of scribblings. But there's, 
the further you step back, you get to see the fullness and the beauty of what's going on. That's much like what we have, and maybe even more of a, a better example is like some of the art that's out now that's made up of little pictures that create the bigger picture instead of just lines. But a lot of times, and I want to encourage you that when you're reading about the tabernacle, when you to, to want to go back into the Old Testament to be like that person going back into that war chest of a grandfather. And now that you know who your grandfather was and you know what kind of person he was, to go back and to learn more deeply and more beautifully our Savior by going into the Old Testament. To go in, and a lot of times when I'm in a museum, I'm not like, well, this is really boring. I don't want to just look at this. I'm usually like, wow, look at the strokes. Look how, you know, I can see how the paintbrush would have done this. And he would have used, how, how in the world? How in the world did that whole picture, how did he do that when he's just right here and he's doing that? And I become mesmerized by little lines, <laughs> little squiggly things, because I know what's out there. We'll do the same thing now that you know who Jesus is in the New Testament to go and to dwell upon those lines, remembering each and every little stroke and looking at these pictures that Jesus has given us in the lampstand and in the bread of presence. Again, I'm not going to take the time to go through all of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm going to go and I'm just going to highlight what Jesus said that he was, that he is this very light that comes from this lampstand, that he is the very bread of presence. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 1. In the very first verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. To chew on these words. Look at these particular strokes that are, even as it's being revealed to us, we see here inside of this that Jesus was the light. He is the light, and that light is life. And that life comes to us as we believe. Remember the purpose of the lampstand as it's shining forth on the table. It is therefore giving us an understanding of who God is what kind of relationship that he desires. And we, as we believe that being put before us, 
and participate in that, we actually have life. We see this again later on when we see that Jesus calls himself the bread in John chapter 6. Go and read John chapter 1. This is, you, you want to go and chew on it. Just like going through and reading Exodus 25 and, and um, 26, and really 25 through 40 is dealing with all of the worship in the tabernacle. And you go, oh, that's so much. Keep in mind, little strokes, little lines keeps creating a great picture for us to understand. But then when we are here in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 6, we're beginning to step way back and we're beginning to see the fullness of that picture of who Jesus is. John chapter 6. This is after, if you go to chapter 6 in the first part of it, you see that this is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he has the, the five loaves and the two fishes and he does this miraculous thing when they're trying to figure out where they're going to go to, to buy bread. And then he, when he finishes with all of the feeding of all the 5,000, he has baskets full of the leftovers. And how many baskets were there? There were 12 baskets. And so what they're doing here, chapter 6 is a, is a very intricate part or an amazing transitional part of the book of John where Jesus is revealing himself, where he is saying, this is who I am. And it's, it's revolutionary in their mind. It's, it's reformationary. Is that a word? It's amazing. Because Jesus is saying, this is me. This is me, what, you, what you've been worshiping and what, how you've been worshiping. I am the bread. And look, and he, and, he, and he does this and he has these 12 baskets and it's overflowing. It's better than 12 loaves. That even after you've been full, you've got leftovers of 12 baskets. And then he walks on the water and then they're, they're, they're just kind of, they're amazed. And they're trying to like, how did, you, how did you get from point A to point B? When did you leave this part of it? And he's just like, hold up. He doesn't even answer their question when they say, when did you leave? <laughs> What's going on here? Because we saw the disciples leave. They didn't leave with you, but you went over there. And he's like, hold up. Verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they're like, well, prove it to us. Show us some kind of sign. And he says, you know, they say our fathers ate the manna. And he says, hold up again. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to my own will or my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father in heaven, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So as we see Jesus revealing himself that he is the light and he is the bread, we're seeing there that there is life in this. And that this is life coming both from the light and life coming from the bread. And the key component is that you would see and know and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the participation. Well, it's not participation like we can bring it up ourselves, but it's our involvement of holding on to Jesus Christ. That do you believe? I mean, we can have this table here, but do you believe that this represents the broken body or the given body of Christ in the poured out blood of Jesus Christ? So we see that life is inside of this. We see that belief is the calling for us. To repent and to believe is the call of the gospel. Let's move on in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. We see that John is echoing himself. We see that he already echoed creation in John 1. And here in 1 John 1, he does it again. He's, He's showing forth how this is going all the way back to the garden. It says in verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We see John echoing himself about the light. But we have here that he's going back to the beginning again. And he's saying that now we can actually see what's going on. The light is shining in front of us to see Jesus Christ, who is the bread. And we see that this is concerning the words of life. So we have the light and the bread, which is showing forth light. I mean life. And then we see that we're called to believe And then we're starting to see here this theme that it is the word of life. If we fast forward a few verses down and it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. We're beginning to see how this is now painting a picture for us even more so vividly. That here the light in the bread is bringing forth life that is through belief. And belief in what? In his word. Which is the word of life. And that if we are not consistent in walking in that light, which is pointing forth his word, we are not able to have fellowship not only with God, we're unable to have fellowship with each other. We're unable to come to the table with God and unable to come to the table with God's people. These are painful words for us to hear sometimes. Because we don't want to have to stand and look at all the lines and the strokes. But here is what we're being told is that there is life in these words. Going back to chapter 6. You don't have to turn there with me. But we see that the Jews grumbled in verses 26 through 64. 
But they grumbled in this whole idea that Jesus was the bread, that he could actually sustain us. That is one of the biggest temptations for us today, is that this is actually effective in bringing us life. That's why Jesus, when he was talking to the 5,000, he says, don't work for the food that perishes, the bread that will leave you empty and dead, but to strive to hold on to true food that will bring eternal life. You might look at there in verses 26 through 64 of John 2, and you go, well, I would not have been one of the Jews, and I would not have grumbled. I promise you, that each and every one of us are just like the Jews. We are tantalized by perishing bread every day. We think that that's going to bring us happiness. We think that that's going to bring us even sustenance. And I'm not talking about just bread. I'm just talking about everything in the world that we can make into an idol. We're constantly focusing. It's so easy to get distracted. You know, it's wonderful that we are able to have our Bibles on these electronic devices. I mean, I really do often read from electronic devices. But click, click, and you're already on something else, just like that. We're so easily distracted. Like, oh, there's a, there's a text. This person's words, you know, LOL, <laughs> or some emoji, is going to be more interesting to us than this particular passage that we're reading. That's why it is good that these things don't go away. <laughs> Because you're not going to have a text show up in the middle of your page, hopefully. You don't have some kind of newfangled technology Bible that does that. That's what we have watered down our view of Christ to be. That, you know, we, here we're talking about art. We, we're happy with the emoji Jesus. <laughs> you know, we don't want to look at lines. We just want this happy face, a smiley face of who Jesus is. We are very much like the Jews. We grumble when we have to discipline ourselves to focus on something that is actually more beautiful than any piece of art in any art museum. And then we try to, we, we start arguing about the words. Again, God, you're hard, it's hard to understand. It says the Jews, if you go later on in, in chapter 6, they're disputing among themselves about this whole idea of how can, how can we eat Jesus' flesh? That doesn't make sense. That's crazy talk. But Jesus says back to them, hold off. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is true drink and has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Keep in mind the context of what's going on here. We're not cannibals. We're not eating the flesh of Jesus. And the blood is like, if you believe everything that's embodied in the whole concept of Jesus being flesh and blood, dying as flesh and blood, and then serving his life, and every element of his life, every single thing of his life, if you believe in everything about Jesus, if you hold fully to the life of Jesus, you will live forever. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then it comes down, you know, we see the, we see the, um, the Pharisees 
They're grumbling. We see the other Jews grumbling. And then it comes down, we, it says later on in verse 66 of chapter 6, it says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, that this is too hard for us to understand. And he says, do, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. We see it all funneling down. The light. The bread. The life. The words of that life that we believe in is what he's telling us to do, to believe his word, to believe what is proclaimed about him in his word. It says that for Jesus knew from the beginning that those who were who, excuse me, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Words of eternal life. That is what he has left us with. That is why we are here today, is that we do not have to do sacrifices of blood of lambs and goats and bulls. We do not have a curtain between you and this word. This word illuminates who Christ is. And he calls us to come and to believe, to come and to eat with him. You must go through blood to come to this table. But that blood is the blood of Jesus Christ. There are some who do not believe. There are some who will not ever believe. And there are some that will be drawn to himself. Because Jesus has promised that he will not lose anyone whom the Lord has promised to be brought to him. But come to this table If you believe that the word of Christ is true, that this bread, his body, that he had a body, lived, died, rose again, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, making continual intercession for us right now. In that sense, we are right there in the place of the most holy of holies. But for now, in the flesh, in this time and in this age, even though there is no veil, there's still this distance because we're not complete. We're not perfected. We're perfected in identity, but not perfected in the here and now. The already, but the not yet. This blood that was poured over our sins come to this table with repentance and in faith and eat 
and be nourished by the word. This is just food that will pass. This drink will pass. But the words that this is highlighting will live eternally in those who are his. Let us pray.